So this Lent, we are reading through the book, The Unvarnished Jesus by Brian Zahn. And uh, so whether by like religious traditions or cultural influences, uh, throughout time, positively or negatively, we build layers on top of how we think of Jesus and what we think uh, life with Jesus should look like. So as we read and as we meet, uh, we're, we're asking two questions. What is the varnish that needs removing from our image of Jesus in his way? And in what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? Uh, so I've heard people describe me as nice. Like, I get it. I get it. I understand. Like, uh, when I ask Siri for something, I thank her. Um, <laughs> if, if, if there's a bug I have to squash, I apologize first. I, I, not, Kelly's out on that one. Um, so I get it, but I'm not nice all the time. And the thing is, like, with removing varnishes, is it, it's not nice work, right? It's, it's hard work, and hard work isn't nice. So if I say something that you don't find nice, that's okay. You know, um, the good thing is, like, if you don't agree with it, we can still love each other, and we can still serve together. And uh, at least that gives us something to talk about instead of, like, what shows we're going to watch this week. Uh, which for me is Shrinking, Ted Lasso, and New Girl reruns. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're going to jump into uh, tackling two passages tonight, two stories. Uh, one of them is a parable. One of them is a, a testimony of an event. And uh, both of them involved a tax collector. The first passage is Luke 18, and it's verses 9 through 14. And that says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, not even able to look up to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and to those who humble themselves will be exalted. So before starting into this parable, uh, you know, Jesus looks around the room and he gauges, like, what's the crowd here? And he catches a common theme among the people. Uh, the verse described these people as people who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Uh, we know those people, Right? Uh, whether they say it or not, their brand of belief is most true. Their way of churching is most right. Like, they really know Jesus. And anyone else just kind of, they're sort of cute, right? The way they do church and the way they try. Uh, 
Um, but if we're honest, though, like, even, like, in how we think about those people, we're kind of being those people at the same time. Um, so Jesus sets up this parable with these two characters. And uh, a couple weeks ago, Fisher reminded us, pointed out that a parable is, is just a story, made-up story, that communicates a lesson. <clears throat> Our characters are a Pharisee and a tax collector, two people that have been on opposite ends of uh, both the moral and political spectrum. A tax collector would have been a, uh, a Jewish person working in the service of the Roman government. Uh, whether they were actually thieves or not, uh, their Jewish neighbors would have seen them in that light. Because even if they were just doing their job, they were still taking money from the community and giving it to this foreign government. A Pharisee was someone who was focused on preserving the Jewish way of life. They protected a traditional moral code. And their religion and way of life was very entangled in their politics. Uh, this was the, uh, the make Israel great again crowd. And... and some of you may chuckle at that characterization. Some of you may squirm a little. Uh, but just know that jabbing one side is not championing the other. Um, this topic, it's not tangential. It's, it's directly related. Because the thing is, like if we're being honest, like political people that believe but are really wrapped up in their politics and the two are intertangled, people on the right think... Uh, we're preserving what's good and correct. And so they see themselves as closer to Jesus and others changing and moving away from Jesus. But then people on the left think, oh, well, this is a journey and we're changing as Jesus would have us change and we're constantly progressing and becoming something better and those who are stuck in their ways get left behind. These are great examples, both, of people who are confident in their own righteousness. The truth is that these two groups are more closely aligned with each other than they are Jesus. And as they sit and argue over here, Jesus is out there, right? Feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, healing the sick, and bringing about kingdom. Looking to his left and right, trying to find people willing to join in the work. It just so happens in this occasion, Jesus finds himself surrounded by people who really are, at that time, the moral majority. People who struggle to see past their own correctness. So it makes sense for him to use a Pharisee in this story. So the story goes on. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, the Pharisee sees himself as just. He sees his way of living as being correct and good. So his focus is on preserving this way and this morality. And, is, and in his eyes, he's been stamped as moral. He finds identity in this morality. And in identifying as moral, he starts to identify others who look and act differently as being immoral. Brian Zahn says that we do a pretty good job of sorting people into good and bad. 
And that's exactly what is going on here. Whether or not the tax collector is immoral, the Pharisee has deemed him so. He has grouped them right in there with robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. We see this sort of thing all the time. Presumptions, jumping to conclusions, uh, and really, like, so much in the church, right? And we need to call this out. We do. We hear about believers, and, and we actually hear believers uh, that are very good, nice people, doing good and nice things, talking about those people. They talk and act like something like being poor or homeless is a consequence of sin. This person over there is an addict, so they must not know Jesus. They need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus, right? This person over here loves differently than I do. In this person, they may have got pregnant out of marriage, so they must not love Jesus like I love Jesus. We presume and sort and presume and sort labeling people as lesser, as unclean, when in reality, we don't know a thing about them and their story. They could be far more faithful than us. When we do things like the clothes closet, I believe it says a massive thing about these people that come, a massive thing about their own faith, that after all the trouble people of the church can put them through, they still show up thinking they can count on the people of the church. Maybe we should stop allowing ourselves to see someone's circumstances uh, and immediately attributing those circumstances to their character or what we believe their relationship to Jesus looks like. Circumstances are just circumstances. If you have a home, it's not because you're moral. It's because at that time in your life, you're financially secure, at least for a few checks. Maybe Christians like the Pharisee aren't uneasy with other people because they don't know Jesus, but maybe they're uneasy because the other people look and act differently than they do. They don't fit within their brand of Christianity. They don't look and act like middle class or higher or nice or straight or cisgender white evangelicals, but if they don't look like that, then there must be something wrong with them, right? This is the problem with finding your identity and morality. We always end up labeling ourselves as moral and others as immoral. The Pharisee is saying thank you to God, but really, what is he doing? He's, he's really celebrating his own morality. And he's claiming entitlement to these blessings. This guy is like the, the Billy Zane of Titanic of Pharisees. Young people, Titanic is, is like the uh, Gone with the Wind, but for Gen Xers. Also, Gone with the Wind is kind of like Avengers Endgame, but for people from Oldham times. Uh, but seriously, like Titanic is going down, right? The Pharisee is thanking God for his lifeboat while at the same time kicking all the poor people that are trying to get into it. What he should really be thanking, for, thanking is, is his money, for being able to afford a top-deck suite near the lifeboats, thanking the crew for prioritizing him over lower-deck passengers. 
It's okay to be blessed, and it's okay to thank God for your blessings. But instead of attributing them to how good you are and claiming entitled over, over them, uh, maybe we move beyond that and start asking how we can leverage those blessings for others who have found themselves in difficult circumstances. Not as our projects, not as charity, but because lesser, lesser circumstances doesn't mean lesser people. The passage goes on, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What we're seeing in the tax collector is someone taking an earnest, honest look at themselves. He isn't looking down on others. He's acknowledging his need for God. In doing a quick self-assessment, we have to make sure that our attitude here is not you all need to be like this tax collector. But instead has to be an attitude of, I need to be like this tax collector. Then what does Jesus say? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He was justified before God. I know many of us can be of the habit of reading stories like this, and walk away thinking that we should view ourselves as less or unworthy. Like we should beat down on ourselves. These types of passages, when we read them like that, can even like make us afraid of committing to the way of Jesus. Because we convince ourselves that we have to enter into this mindset of brokenness, when in reality it's quite the opposite. God is not interested in the tax collector acknowledging his filth and then remaining in it. This is why Jesus says those who humble themselves can be exalted. Let me give you an example. So one of the things that Rebecca and I love, much like Winston from New Girl, is puzzles. And uh, many evenings we spend around puzzles. One thing you won't see us do, for example, is this. When we have a puzzle... And I'm sorry, pieces are going to fall on the floor, Rebecca. She has like a mini heart attack for every piece that falls on the floor. But one thing we don't do is get a puzzle out and then look at it and say, that looks right. Right? That's not right. That's not the finished puzzle. It's not until we acknowledge that the puzzle is broken, that we can then start putting it together. When someone is convinced of their own righteousness, they never acknowledge their brokenness. Also, when we don't acknowledge our brokenness, or we, we don't acknowledge our brokenness just to leave it broken. Once we acknowledge it, then we can start putting it together. This is how we can be exalted. We face our filth, and then God will stand us up and let us walk out of it. Now let's look back at, our ta- at the other tax collector. In Luke 19, uh, we have the story of Zacchaeus. Verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed climbed a sycamore fig tree 
to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be with, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Once again, what's the temperature of the room? Uh, what is the crowd like? Jesus looks around and he finds himself around people that mutter, right? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Did you see what she did? Did you hear what he said? We know these people, right? Did you hear about so-and-so's relationship? Do you think they really love Jesus? Church, one of our bad habits is this. We are much better at accepting grace for ourselves than we are for our shortcomings than we are extending it to others and theirs. I'm not saying we're great at accepting grace, right? Some of us are absolutely terrible at accepting grace. Uh, like we feel like we can't be forgiven. Uh, but on average, we tend to overlook a lot of our own mess while being very critical of other people's mess. Many of us can struggle that God, to believe that God's grace uh, covers all of our brokenness. So if we aren't sure of that, that it can cover ours, how sure can we be that it covers that person's or that person's? Like, maybe God's grace extends just enough for us but not quite enough for those people. <clears throat> Once again, because maybe we are not quite moral, but we are still a bit more moral than them, whomever they are. Maybe we do this Jesus thing just right enough. How little is our view of God's grace, if that's the case? How little is our view of his grace? How little is our view of God, the work God is doing? Just because someone's life looks differently than ours does not mean that God is not at work in their life. It doesn't mean that I'm more faithful. And if God's grace isn't sufficient enough for them, why am I to think that it's sufficient enough for me? So I better know that it is sufficient enough for them. And if God freely shares his life-giving grace with them, who am I to reserve it? This person over there has something in their life that I consider wrong, but my belief says that God, the God of the universe has forgiven them and loves them, so why on earth would I hold it against them? We need to reconsider to whom and to what extent God shares his grace. And we also need to be more aware of how we dispense and reserve our own grace. I want to start there where grace is dispensed and, and work back. So in verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I always found the wording of this verse strange. Um, because I always wondered, like, is Jesus saying this man is saved because of who he is? Or uh, who his people are? Because that's very counter to, like, the way things work out in my mind. But Brian Zahn points out a great fact here about first century Jewish beliefs. Sinfulness was not just a characterization of an immoral act, uh, but also of someone who found themselves excluded from the righteous community. Uh, Zacchaeus was Jewish, a descendant of Abraham, but he was not part of, as the Pharisees defined, a faithful and moral Jewish community. He was outside of the people of God. So that means he must not be with God. That separation is what they called sinfulness. Going back to this puzzle for a minute, it's easy for us to view the brokenness in the context of being an individual. To view the separate pieces in, as like our own brokenness. But it's far more difficult, I think, for us to identify the brokenness in terms of community. A big part of that is uh, we don't look at our community as something that was ever whole or ever meant to be whole. Uh, we don't have the box, right, with the picture to show us what it should look like. We don't see all those connections that should have existed uh, we tend to see our church and or the broader like Jesus community as as whole already, separate puzzles, and anyone who joins in is like a bonus piece. Oh, that's addition. We were whole, but now we have them too, so we're just a little bit bigger. Um, when in reality, it, it, we're all one big puzzle, right? Like you wouldn't have like. This, so you can say, all right, here's all the members of our church. This isn't a whole puzzle. If we took these pieces and put them together, there'd still be gaps and holes. This puzzle would be incomplete and still broken, even though we're a a beautiful community. There's so many other pieces that are lost. You have like that piece over there and that piece. You have, uh, you have the piece that looks and acts differently than you. Uh, the, the, the piece over there that's homeless and, and that piece that's the real sketchy one. The people of God were the children of Abraham. These good and moral people saw Zacchaeus as sinful as someone outside of their family. But Jesus saw who he truly was, a lost child of Abraham. Jesus was leaving the 99 to find the one. The 99 saw the broken ties of the one as shameful, not realizing that the brokenness was shared with themselves. As long as Zacchaeus was estranged from the people of God, not living into his identity as part of God's family, then not only was he broken, but they were not whole. They were still broken. There was brokenness in the family of God. Jesus saw broken ties not as shameful, but as something to transcend and mend. 
I love this story because Zacchaeus can't quite see Jesus, right? He's still looking for him, and I believe that is faith. That is faith. You can't quite see, you can't quite make it out, but you're still looking. You're still searching. I also love it because it makes me ask, where's the journey of repentance start? Does it start when Zacchaeus righted all his wrongs? Let me ask that. No. In fact, Zacchaeus hasn't righted all his wrongs, right? He makes a good effort, but he even says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Repentance isn't paying back and righting all your wrongs. So he receives salvation before he even makes up for his mistakes. We need to think of repentance as something bigger than that. Does repentance start when Zacchaeus invites Jesus to his home? No, he didn't invite you, right? Jesus invites himself. He's like, hey, get down from the street. I'm going to your place. I think we need to think of repentance as something even bigger than that. Does it start when Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus? I would say no. Before Zacchaeus goes searching for Jesus, Jesus is already journeying journeying towards him. Church, one of the worst habits we have in the modern church culture is this idea that repentance starts with self-correction. We view people as others, outsiders. We sit in ivory towers and expect and demand people to make amends, that they journey to us, that they climb the stairs to the chapels, that they take the walk of shame, that they change themselves, that they change their lives to look like our lives, that they display their faithfulness so that then and only then we can give our permission our stamp of approval that they can be church members. I mean, saved. And we live this way even though we say that our salvation cannot be earned. We believe this even when we quote scriptures like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We believe this even though the story of scripture shows over and over again, God is going out pursuing finding, loving, redeeming the broken and the lost? What if God's grace is bigger than what we believe? What if the journey of repentance is bigger than what we model? I believe that the journey of repentance started before Zacchaeus did anything at all or said anything or went looking for Jesus. I believe it started when Jesus took the first step towards Zacchaeus. Repentance started when Jesus made up his mind to include the excluded one. It started with inclusion. Can you believe it? Can we try to believe it? What if we genuinely believe that the journey of repentance and salvation starts not when people make the changes we require of them, but when we make up our minds to stop excluding them? Zacchaeus was one that was outside the people of God, this one outside the reach of the family. But why? Did Zacchaeus choose to be outside of a relationship with God? No. The people of God chose to exclude him. 
Church, there are lost pieces to our puzzle scattered everywhere. People who have been deemed unworthy, who have been labeled sinful, who have been seen as outside the love of God unless they first conform to what we believe an acceptable life should look like. I fully believe that, and by we, I mean both like the people among the Christian community, but also our church specifically, I believe we are heading towards a big season, a season that will be both incredible and challenging that will require us to remove some varnishes, a season of leaving behind the mutterers, leaving behind the shelter of our walls, both physically and metaphorically, stepping away from a culture steeped in confidence in our own righteousness. So what's the varnish we can remove? How about the varnish that Jesus is exclusively ours and his grace is bound to our own morality? How about the varnish that we paint over the faces of our neighbors, excluding and shaming people over their circumstances? Can we dare not to equate difference with being lesser than or sinful? How about the varnish that we have it all together and instead see what we are forever, that we are forever being pieced together? In what ways is Jesus inviting us to see him more this week? How about seeing his face in the faces of our neighbors? Can we dare to see our lost brothers and sisters instead of strangers? to see people who have been included in God's grace at the same time being excluded from the religious and moral community? Can we accept that God has included even them and that his grace extends to those people, the ones who don't understand, the ones we don't understand? Father, I pray that you continue to open up our eyes to our own brokenness and start shutting our eyes to the brokenness of our neighbors. Lord, open it to the extent that we can help them and be there for them, but let us not use those circumstances to exclude them any longer. Lord, help us to welcome your lost children back into their family. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.